everybody, and a very big welcome to everybody to our State of Governance webinar. I'm going to introduce our guests in a moment, but I just wanted to say a very big welcome to everyone. People seem to come to our webinar today from all around Australia, which is fantastic. Our topic today is all about climate change, social inclusion and gender equity. And we know that there's a whole lot of legislation and requirements out there right now that as boards, directors and executives, we're all doing things about. But the main reason we're going to talk about this today is because all of you who work with us in the governance review and development programs with the governance evaluator and our partnership with VHA and ACHG are telling us that climate change, social inclusion, gender equity are important things. They need to be on our agenda, but a lot of us are like, well, what exactly are we meant to be doing about all of these? And in particular, what are some really important things as directors, boards and executives we can do to lead these things? So I thought, who better to talk to than our three guests today to get them to talk about what is it that we're meant to be doing and, more importantly, give us some tips. So, Michaela, welcome, and I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today. So if you'd like to introduce yourself and... Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Thanks, Fee. Uh, so as Fee mentioned, my name's Michaela Dreberg and I'm from the Victorian Healthcare Association. I'm the Director of Strategy and Engagement here and I've been at the organisation since December 2020. Prior to that, I worked at the University of Melbourne as well as Monash University I'm teaching into Master of Public Health and Bachelor of Public Health. And I have 20 years experience across public health. So a wide range of areas that that have led me to where I am at the VHA now, where we work directly with uh, members that are large public health services through to small rural hospitals, through to community health and public sector aged care as well. So I'm really happy to be here and to draw on that experience in addition to my role as a director in community health as well. Terrific. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about these three topics. Joanne, a big welcome to you. Thank you, Fee, and good afternoon, everybody, and special thoughts to everybody that's in lockdown at the moment. We've uh, just been told in Melbourne that our lockdown is going to be extended for another seven days. So isn't it wonderful that we've got this fantastic virtual platform to keep us connected with the professional community? My name's Joanne Walford, and I'm the Executive Director of the Australian Centre for Healthcare Governance, or ACHG, as you heard Fee refer to it before. So my role with that organisation, which is part of the Victorian Healthcare Association is to provide governance consultancy and support to the health and community sector. I've been doing that for the last four years, but my background is in health. I'm a, a clinician originally, but I have a special expertise in quality and clinical risk management in particular. So I bring that lens to this discussion. I'm also an experienced board director. I'm on the board of West Gippsland Healthcare Group and Uniting Big Taz. So thanks, Fee. Looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective as well. And Julia, big welcome to you today. 
Thank you, Fee. Hello, everybody. To introduce myself, I work with Governance Evaluator and doing some of the work with boards around the performance evaluation and um, assessment for skilled matrices. But outside of that, I'm an interim executive. At the moment, I'm working in the Victorian Building Authority, looking um, at rolling out the move, the move of their workforce to 100% working from home. And then gender equality, we've got uh, a big project going on uh, that's going to be not only internal but externally facing there. So I deep dive into that topic. In terms of background, I developed my love of health when I was working in medical research as an HR director and have stayed in the sector broadly uh, through aged care, disability, so on, mainly with a lens around consumer employee um, experience. I'm a director as well on a community health board and as the other third plank of my portfolio, I do a lot in the advisory space for health-related businesses. Lovely. Thank you, Julia. Terrific. This is going to be a great conversation. So, what I'd like to start with today is to talk about climate change. Now, Joanne, on the back of you actually talking about going back into lockdown again today, I remember back to early 2020 when we went into lockdown for the first time in March. And what happened was it completely distracted us all from the fact that a lot of the services that we work with in health and not-for-profits and all sorts of organisations across Victoria and New South Wales were being ravaged by bushfire. Not only ravaged by bushfires, but were also in incredible heat waves and on the ends of some significant droughts. And I think that on the back of that, it's good to talk again about climate change and for us not to be too distracted at the boardroom table and hear what is it that we're actually meant to be doing and thinking about at the boardroom table. You know, like, are we all meant to be watching that David Attenborough video again and reminding ourselves this is such an important topic and we're not even allowed to be distracted by COVID. So, Michaela, with your experience at the moment in your incredible strategy role with VHA, tell us about what are you learning at the moment about climate change and what the board's roles are? Well, from um, our perspective, we've recently held a forum with a number of our members, specifically looking at climate change adaptation plans. So the Victorian government's released a series of different adaptation action plans for different sectors and health and human services is one of them. So it was a really great opportunity to put climate change and adaptation and mitigation and resilience and there's distinct differences between all of them back on the table because we are so consumed with COVID right now but this is very much something that should be at the forefront of all our minds certainly from a risk perspective but just in terms of thinking about how business continuity what it looks like moving forward as well so this is a good catalyst to bring it back on the agenda so and it was really interesting from a VHA perspective to see who was interested and who managed who was able to be engaged through this process so we had representation from a number of our members, from infrastructure through to people that are specifically um, employed to look at the wide umbrella of sustainability and directly involved with service delivery as well. 
it was very much at the operations level. And so it would be interesting to see how much of a conversation does happen at the director and the board level, because just from conversations we've all had, it's not commonly there, even though we do see a number of health services do have some form of sustainability plan in place. But it is very much in terms of health and human services, something that impacts us um, both directly and indirectly. And some of the information that we gathered looked at those two distinctions and some of the direct impacts that we discussed was how climate change can create big disruptions to services. And we saw that with bushfires, but we've seen it through floods and we've seen it through other extreme weather events where it literally disrupts services because clients and patients can't get to the services they need. But staff can't either and technology fails us and the list goes on. It impacts food security, access to nutritious foods, access to clean water, and not to mention the mental health impacts that, you know, many people have experienced through our pandemic as well. We also talked about some of those indirect impacts that it has on health and human services as well. And there was a lot of commonalities with food security being a primary area of concern and access to services being a primary area of concern, but also the financial costs that it has to households, inequality that's exacerbated further, and how it impacts from a business perspective on our economy and our business continuity plans. So there's some of the common themes that came through with just discussing with our members, specifically when we were looking at climate adaptation plans for health and human services. And I'm, I'm sure other sectors are experiencing similarities, especially when you think about infrastructure. But in terms of service delivery, there's some real indirect and indirect impacts. That's, that's incredible. And did you, from a tips perspective for those who are, saying, okay, we're going to look at our strategy, we've got to actually get some things um, in line here. Did you see any really good examples of what some are doing? I know Joanne has some fantastic examples in this space, Ah. but my main point here would be to be aware of what's happening within a wider context. And I come from a very policy-driven perspective. So to, to come along to sessions like this and to be aware of what's bubbling along as priorities, and Governance Evaluator certainly has oversight of that. But from a practical point of view is when these plans and these strategies and these frameworks are coming to you as a board director, it's not a ticker box exercise. It's how does this impact our organisation? What is my responsibility as a director to make sure that this is something that remains a priority and is embedded throughout the organisation that can be supported from an executive level and driven from an executive level? Terrific. That is so good. And that is a perfect segue to Joanne because I agree, Joanne, you've got actually some hands-on experience in this area and, and some good information about some changes that are happening around risk and risk evaluation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you were quite right in your introduction, Fee, that we had one of our worst bushfire seasons in history in 2019-2020, and we were thoroughly distracted by the pandemic, which followed closely on its heels. But we know that climate change is the crisis of our generation. We only have to look at the report that's come out from the UN in the last couple of days, and and it's called it a, a humanitarian code red. So I think globally, our generation has a responsibility to look at how we can respond to the crisis that we have unfolding at the moment. So interestingly, 
We talked about the bushfire season. It wasn't unexpected. And in my conversations with the Victorian Managed Insurance Authority, so VMIA, which is the, the state insurer for all public um, services in Victoria, they have said they have gone from a bushfire being a once in 50 year event to being a once in every 10 year event. They are insuring for catastrophic bushfires. And the same with floods. You only have to look at the recent experience we've had here in, in Australia with significant flood activity, catastrophic weather events. It's very much a reality. And the frequency and severity of those events is getting um, higher and closer together. So it has to form part of our risk management strategy at the board level. How do we plan for disasters. What are we doing as an organisation to make sure that we're prepared for disaster management and what is the role of the board in that particular process? For myself, I'm on the board of West Gippsland Healthcare Group. You might recall that not too long ago, only a few weeks ago, there were, was catastrophic flooding in the Latrobe Valley. Now, my organisation wasn't directly affected by that, but the health services that were in the peak of the flood area certainly did have some impact. So we had to look at how could we support them? What could we do to help them get through those particular challenges? And some very practical things were around, we have a, a linen service, we provided them with linen because their local laundries, et cetera, were out of action. So that was our role in that particular disaster planning process. And metropolitan organisations might think, well, bushfires aren't necessarily going to impact on me directly. But unfortunately, if we have a whole um, series of health services out in the rural regions that are impacted directly by bushfires, they're going to have to pick up the overflow. How can they swing in and help provide health services to those affected areas? So it's really important that as part of this whole climate change discussion, we start bringing disaster planning, really practical disaster planning in at the board level. What I also think is really important is that the board is the senior leadership team of the organisation. They set the culture, they set the expectations. And if the board is not interested in climate change and environment sustainability, why would we expect the rest of the organisation to be interested? Where's that leadership coming from? So I think it's really important that boards discuss and consider what is their role in providing leadership around environmental sustainability? And what are they doing to show the organisation that they see it as an important issue? So, for example, in many um, public organisations, there's an expectation that they have an environment sustainability plan, that they are actually working towards uh, reducing their carbon footprint, that they're working towards um, increasing water security, et cetera, those sorts of things, reducing waste. So how does the board keep abreast of what's going on there? Are they looking at the improvements that are being made in the organisation? Have they set some KPIs around uh, carbon reduction, around reducing waste? It's really important that the board actually sets the tone and sets the expectation for the organisation. So there's a real role for the organisation to play. So for me, there's two things for the board. It's around that disaster management and what's the role of the board in terms of disaster planning, but it's also around that proactive environmental sustainability and how the board's leading the way in their expectations across the organisation. Oh, Joanne, I think that's so true. And look, to your point, Joanne, about the metropolitan or the larger regionals, if you're in Athens right now, your suburbs are burning 
And so to your point, it, it, it actually does affect every single one of us. It's really Absolutely. true. And look, that is also a perfect segue to Julia. And Julia, you've actually sat on a rule board and this very planning was required. So I was sitting as director on the Lawn Community Hospital Board when the Wye River fires and the fires down that surf coast road broke out. And we had a dementia unit inside the hospital, a residential dementia unit. We'd been able to furlough most of the patients across to other regional hospitals, but we made the decision as the board that the risks to residential clients was going to be too great. So I guess I would say that my insight from there would be there's a distinction between emergency planning, which this was, and business continuity. So we had to make the decision that we would have to do a stand and defend rather than try and relocate. I think there were probably 20 people. The only other place that we could have taken them was down to the beach to the surf club so much easier to stand and defend which meant that we had to make room for I think there were 10 to 12 fire appliances on the helicopter pad spraying water across the hospital and a lot of people won't know what the hospital looks like but it's a gorgeous little regional hospital that um, is surrounded by gum trees (laughs) (laughs) we had to review that too (laughs) 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 my other experience is in uh, aged care as an executive and I I guess that I would say business continuity in some of those um, organisations has become really important obviously through COVID but we needed to have in the organisation I was in we had a system that I think worked really, really well for business continuity planning, where we had a a health and safety and a business continuity executive team that formed as a committee and was a very inclusive committee. We got input from staff across the business and then that fed up through to the um, subcommittees and to the full board so that we had a process of communication going up and down. And we deliberately looked at all our supply lines, all our business processes, all our technology, everything um, through the business so that we could stabilise any disruptions or critical operations really fast. We set ourselves a two-hour response time and we made a mechanism where we really looked at capitalising on any learnings that we had coming out of incidences. So we integrated emergency planning and business continuity into that meeting. Mm. And I think it really builds capacity and resilience back into the business when you do that. Yeah. And Julia, just to follow on from your really interesting story about lawn, Matt is um asked a really important question, which ties in with another question that's just being asked. Matt's wanting to know, when you actually made that decision, was it just the board or did you do it with other key stakeholders, such as the the local fire authority and so on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So not only with the SES and the police and the fire authority, you know, emergency services, but also surrounding hospitals, and, and then other community supports like the Surf Lifesaving Club and the bank, because the bank was actually one of the buildings there that was the least fire. So, you know, it was an all-community type response and fairly full-on, a lot of engagement going on all the time, yeah. So, so Julia, thank you, because there's also a couple of people who are saying 
when it comes to, you know, thinking about climate change on the board and as Joan and Michaela already said, that genuine strategy, how do we choose our stakeholders and how do we engage? And I think you've just given a very good example of that, that they're different to our normal health or, you know, kind of key stakeholders. They're actually emergency key stakeholders and, and very different to how you normally would think. So thank yeah, you. I think, I think that that's why when I was working in aged care, we integrated emergency response in with business continuity. Although they're separate, when push comes to shove, you need to be able to act quickly, but also take the learnings from an emergency incident and feed it back into the system. So not separating them, but letting them be supporting structures is actually a really clever thing to do Mm. and integrating it into a continuous improvement up and down the business from board to um, grassroots and up again. It's a really important point that someone's made is that it's not about the organisation itself, it's all the support functions around whether it's, as I said, emergency services, police, whatever. Every entity in the in the organisation, including some of the local schools, have to be included in, in your thinking. Mm. Now, that's really important. And look, what you three have all just talked about is why climate change is the number one agenda for a lot of boards. And I know across health and across aged care and many other boards, we all talk about the need to have a consumer story at the beginning of our board meetings. But I'm actually also thinking there might be some other stories we need to have. What is a good climate change story? How does that impact on our environment? So if we're talking about important board agendas, of course, we have other important board agendas. And another important one is social inclusion. And if I look at areas where I think boards are really doing extraordinary work around social inclusion because I think as we all mentioned before and Michaela you talked about it before social inclusion and gender equity are human right subjects they're not just about men and women they're actually about human rights equal access to power to resources and opportunities And if I look at some of the work that's happening in water boards at the moment, it's just so incredible to be driving along and hearing on the ABC about burning off in regions, now having uh, local Aboriginal communities guiding and leading our hand in how we do that burning off to ensure water safety. And I can't think of a better example of inclusion than that. I can't also think of a more sensible strategy than that (laughs) because it's drawing on that wisdom. So, Joanne, I'm really interested in your perspective around social inclusion, what you're seeing, what you're learning about this particular area with all your board work. Thanks. Thanks, Faith. I think it's a really important area that that boards focus on and that we recognise that you have to have a call to action. It's not just something that's a conversation. There has to be some real work that supports the social inclusion uh, policy, attitude and culture of the organisation. We know that most healthcare 
services have a disability action plan. They usually have some sort of Indigenous inclusion plan. We know they've got gender equity plan, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. But a plan is nothing unless there's actions that sit behind it and you can actually see some visible results. And I know it's something that we've been working really hard on in the two organisations that I'm involved in. And I'd like to give you a little bit of some examples of some of the things that we've been doing. So I attended the cultural awareness training for the local Indigenous community at West Gippsland Healthcare Group, the Kurnai people. And the, it was the best cultural awareness training I've, I've ever seen. And the elder was talking about how the, the Indigenous people have an oral and pictorial culture and that written language is relatively new to them. It's only recent generations um, that actually have adopted the written language. Their traditional language is very much pictorial and oral. And he talked about how the totem of the local people is a blue wren, the little bird. And he said that West Gippsland Healthcare Group has a blue wren at the entrance of every um, part of the hospital. So every door to the external environment has a blue wren. I'd never noticed it before. And I actually went and did a walk around the hospital and I could see this little blue wren there. And that's the sign of welcome to Indigenous people. So the word welcome written didn't mean anything to them, but to have that blue wren at all of those external entrances was a sign of safety for them and a sign that they were welcome in the, in the organisation. So I think it's really important that we actually take those thoughts into actions. I did some work with VHA last year on an accessible and inclusive employment program sponsored by the Department of Health Disability uh, Sector. And we actually interviewed a range of people, young people with disability, around what they needed to see when they were looking at applying for, particularly in the health sector. And it was really interesting to hear from them that the first thing they do is go and look on the website. They would do their research, look on the website of the organisation that was advertising a role, and they said they could tell pretty quickly whether that organisation had a disability-inclusive um, culture just by the wording on the website, just by how the website was set up to be accessible for people with disability, by even mentioning any disability support programs that they had. So, you know, I think it's really important that you actually live those policies of, of inclusiveness. Something else that we do really well at West Gippsland is around the LGBTIQ community. We are really fortunate to have a transgender woman on our community advisory committee, and she has been instrumental in helping us make uh, West Gippsland Healthcare a more LGBTIQ friendly and inclusive organisation. She has that lived experience. She's really comfortable talking to us about how we can be inclusive in the way we deliver our services and in the way we set up our programs. And it's been fantastic in terms of turning the organisation around. So we're very grateful to have her. But that's where we need to be looking at, at ensuring that we are inclusive on our um, community advisory committee. We also have somebody with a disability. It's really important that we get those different perspectives and viewpoints as input when we're planning services, when we're reviewing our services, and when we're looking at moving forward in any way. Dr. What a beautiful example. So just incredible. But I think the biggest message I just got from you is it cannot be tokenism. No, absolutely no. not. It, it's got to be real. 
Yeah, and actually set a smaller agenda and really do it rather than a whole lot of big stuff. I love it. Julia, from your perspective, and I know you are an absolute advocate of being genuine and no tokenism, so tell me about some of your experiences and what you've learned. I think the main thing that I've learned from sitting on community health boards and also being as an executive in, in service delivery is that it's less frequent for the board to actually hear from the voice of the consumer. It's more common that it sits in the operations of the business and then a report or a presentation might go up to the board. So, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is the lack of lived experience among some of the board members for, for the, in the services that the, that the organisation actually delivers. So people are, are hired onto a board for their skill rather than necessarily understanding the lived experience. So if I go back to aged care, it's more common that the board members are men and it's usually the case that the uh, carer of the client is a woman. And so you're immediately getting a, a potential for a disconnect around understanding how to shape service delivery to meet the needs of the client. But, I, you know, we were talking yesterday about an area close to my heart, which is not necessarily high on the agenda for diversity, and that's people with neurodiverse conditions. So... ADHD, Asperger's, autism, we have them in the workforce all the time. And I've noticed across my time as an HR director that people like that are often treated as performance management issues, and they're not. <laughs> we don't have systems and structures that actually fit to the way that people with in incredible intelligence and creativity actually operate. So unless we're inclusive about how we shape the way our organisation shows up, and creates that safe culture, then we're making it really, really difficult for quite a proportion of the population. Mm, no, it's true. And, and Michaela, you too have a real advocate of this being a genuine strategy, not just talked about at the board. Yeah, and I, th I think both Joanne and Julia touched on the two important components to keep front of mind when we are talking about social inclusion. It's making sure outward services are being as inclusive as possible, but also that we are looking internally at our operational level and at our governance levels to make sure that that's reinforcing the message across the organisation. I think it's, it's really important to not just focus on one and not the other uh, because it's, it really is just tokenism otherwise. So I think Julia made some really important points there in terms of looking at diversity when we are looking at our, our boards and our executive teams in particular, and we'll talk about this a bit more with gender, but you know, that's a, an obvious one that we'll unpack a little bit further that is initially on people's minds when we are talking diversity, but there's so much other forms of lived experience that needs to be represented as well and can really shape decisions and the discussion that's happening um, across the different areas within an organisations and with the communities that we that we relate to as well. So when we are talking about diversity, we're thinking about things like the type of faith people have. We're thinking about their cultural diversity. We're thinking about if they identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, do they have lived experience with a disability? Do they ultimately reflect the community that we represent and we see that a lot with our health services particularly in our regional and our rural health services where there's a real balance that needs to be struck in terms of 
making sure we have that lived experience from having a local understanding and a local knowledge of the communities in those local areas, but also balancing that with the skills that are needed and required um, from a governance perspective as well. And finding that balance can um, be quite a challenge for boards and is an ongoing area that we're trying to address where, again, it's do we have the right skills to be able to provide um, direction for a, a service to be able to deliver the, the health services in this case that they need to for their communities? But do they? how well do we understand our communities? And are there other ways to be able to do that outside of having that represented on a board? And there are a number of um, mechanisms where you can. And I saw there was a question earlier about identifying our stakeholders and how do we connect to those stakeholders? And there's been resources recently um, released that look at how we can elevate those stakeholder voices to the board as well. So what other mechanisms can we use where we are talking at a governance level about um, essentially social inclusion, that lived experience and having diversity in terms of our thinking? It's actually a scary thought when it feels comfortable as well that you're surrounded by like-minded people. It feels comfortable and you feel like you're on the right path when that's the case. But I've certainly experienced when someone has the opposite view of me, that's really when you're demonstrating you are being inclusive as possible because if you have different views, you're reflecting those different views and experiences of the communities around you. And that's certainly something I experienced within a prior life when I was in local government as a mayor. It was um, making sure we had those different views around the table that represented the diversity of the communities that we represent as well. That is a really good way to put it. If you feel uncomfortable, then that's actually a really good thing. And Michaela, to your point, I know that quite often it is really hard and quite restrictive to actually have people sitting around the boardroom table that reflect that diversity. And I think to Joanne's point and to answer quite a few questions here today is that the other ways of bringing that diversity or inclusion to the table through committees. Is that the only way that you can think of that we can bring that diversity or inclusion to the table, as Joanne mentioned? Joanne, have you got any extra thoughts on that? Yeah, sometimes it is very difficult to actually recruit people locally that have that lived experience. As I said, we've been very fortunate to get the transgender person on our community advisory committee, but you can certainly co-opt people in with that lived experience or with that expertise in that area to help you with particular projects or to, for example, looking at your website, uh, asking somebody with disability to give you some feedback on how could you improve the organisation website to make it more readily accessible to people with a disability. Uh, there are lots of people out there that do have expertise and are available to consult in those spaces. And so it's around thinking a little bit more outside the square. And as I said, recognising that that's an important part of implementing your diversity inclusion plan. Mm, no, that's good. And Michaela, what are your extra thoughts on that as well? Just moving away from that for the governance space and reinforcing um, some of the stories that Joanne and Julia shared is just um, how the visualisation can be a 
big signal in terms of how inclusive you are being in terms of an organisation or not. If you think about when you enter your reception areas, how inclusive is that? Is there Are there boom gates to enter your car parks? Are the doors readily open to people of all walks of life? How high are your benches? Even, you know, some of the protective equipment that we have to have in place now in, ter- in terms of perspex, reception, what does that mean in terms of being inclusive and again if you're unable to to stand or you happen to be in a wheelchair or just need to sit down to fill in some forms where's your bench height for that are there signs demonstrate there there are people that can speak in different languages or can communicate in different ways as well if you have verbal issues and then in terms of a really good example i saw in some health services where people had the opportunity to practice their faith and there was examples in some hospitals where they had a sacred space, where which was non-denominational, where people felt comforted to go when they needed to feel comfort and didn't feel they, that they weren't welcome. And then where you might have an older site where there's a chapel on site, which is lovely and welcoming for some people, but for others felt like they weren't able to practice their faith that they that wasn't conducive to a chapel environment. So sometimes that physicality is really strong, not only for patients and visitors but for your staff as well mm. but that's that's so so absolutely true so let's talk about the other key agenda item at the moment and let's talk about gender equity and I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of catching up with Claire Brown the CEO of Women on Boards and We both agree that gender equity, social inclusion, isn't just about men and women. It's actually bigger than that. It's a really important statement about how we should just treat each other and everybody. But Claire said a really important thing. She said, but when it comes to women, it's an incredibly good place to start. So I think with that thought in mind, Julia, I'd love to hear your perspective on this and particularly that equality versus um, equity, those sorts of things. Yeah, I agree with um, Claire. I think to me there's a there's a big difference between gender equity and gender equality and, and it's really hard to operationalise and I'll explain why. So equality basically means that everybody's given the same resources regardless of, whereas equity recognises that some people are behind the eight ball and need to be given a bit more help than others. So so for all of us that are sitting on in organisations or on boards, we've got a few structural barriers in place to make that happen. In the workforce, we've got a whole lot of legislation that talks about privacy and discrimination and this and that that actually stops us from being able to now do what we need to do for the Gender Equality Act, (laughs) which a lot of us are suddenly being um, asked to work through with the new commission. And we're being asked um, to report on intersectional data, which is obviously not just gender, but it's disability, race, religion, all sorts. And of course, most organisations haven't been keeping that data or collecting it because they thought that that was the wrong thing to do around why are you wanting my data like that for? What are you going to do with it? So now we're having to create, we're doing two things in in many businesses. We are looking at a gender audit and then 
towards creating a gender equality action. But I think it would be the hope of any organisation doing this work is to actually take that intersectional lens as best they can and, and being really consultative with their staff because... As we've talked about before, this is a human rights issue. It's about access to resources, social impact, influence in decision-making, you know, all those inclusive things where decisions are being made and people need a voice. So understanding lived experience, understanding the power balances and how that's playing out in your workforce through processes, policy, practice, all those little biases and the structures that you went, hmm, because every organisation I've been in go, oh, look, we've been working really hard in this. And I say, let's have a look at your pay equity data. Oh, we report to WIGA. And then you go and have a look at it. And there's a big difference between men and women. <laughs> For whatever reason. So it's, it's an interesting um, time to be looking at this work. And it's a really relevant time given what we've seen COVID pulling up for women in general and then if you go and put that intersectional lens across it and say disability race ethnicity whatever it becomes so much harder which is where we need to move to next in our as directors to create a culture that's inclusive and diverse because that improves our businesses and our service delivery yeah very true and go on for another hour Oh, I, I want to listen to you for another hour. And Joanne, because what I'm interested in is how does this impact on our health services and workforces that aren't traditionally men, they're actually traditionally men? Look, it's interesting because health is a female-dominated profession, not just at the nursing level but also allied health medical etc it's it's female dominated and yet we don't necessarily see that reflected in the leadership positions that we have sitting around the executive table I think there's been substantial improvement in recent times at a board level and you know we do have an affirmative action process in Victoria where there is a requirement that boards um, have appropriate gender balance. So we've seen a significant change in recent years and we have more women on health boards. In fact, the board that I was on in West Gippsland, we struggled to find men for a while. There was one lonely man on our board and the rest were women, but we have restored balance there a little bit more in recent years. But that's a new thing. And I think if we are going to, again, it's like our social inclusion discussion, you have to live the policy you have to live through your culture through your appointment process etc gender equality and despite being as I said a, a female dominated industry we don't necessarily see that reflected in the leadership positions that we have so it's something that we do need to be working towards mm. no I agree and Michaela from all of your strategic work Talk to us a little bit about this Gender Equity Act and some of your insights. This is an example of where it's a um, legislation's been used to um, support this being put on the agenda. So it's not just a nice to have, it's a have to have for public entities in Victoria anyway. So amongst 2020, one of the things that was easily lost was that a Gender Equality Act was introduced into Victoria and from March this year, a number of obligations came into effect. So 
public entities, which are largely any government body, inclusive of health services in Victoria, as well as universities and local governments, are required to meet a number of obligations, they refer to it, under a Gender Equality Act. And that is to conduct a gender audit, to conduct gender impact assessments on new policies and programs, and to create a gender equality plan. There were initial timelines earlier this year that they were required to be met by, but now it's been extended out to December, just recognising the pressure that all sectors are under in responding to the pandemic. But from a VHA perspective, it was particularly challenging for our health services and will continue to be as well. And whilst there's a number of obligations that are required, and if you weren't aware of it, your operations are tearing their hair out trying to meet these obligations. It's really about this is a bigger cultural change conversation. This is a trigger and a catalyst for making sure that it's something that is at the forefront of our minds, but there's a real risk that it's lost in the operations of conducting an audit and writing a plan that you may or may not see as directors, but our responsibility is to do something about it as directors and to embed it throughout our organisation. I saw an example that came through recently where through conducting audits, a particular council recognised that a number of their places were only named after men or significantly only after men. So they are now making a change and revisiting that when they are looking at renaming stadiums and places and streets to make sure that there's a balance there in terms of gender equality. But at an operational level, you know, it's about making sure we're looking at both genders as well. So um, by and large, it is women that are affected, but there are other examples of where how it impacts men impacts women as well. So, for example, access to parental leave. So, you know, most organisations will have some form of parental leave for women, but does that still exist for men? And if it does, is it enough to be able to support having a new child come into your life? Where are your change tables located? Is that in practice reinforcing that both mum and dad have a role to play? And so these are some really practical examples of where these obligations from an ACT perspective, an e- a legal perspective that has been used to, as a catalyst to put gender on the agenda, can bring about really practical outcomes, but without the support of an executive, without the support and the leadership from a board looking internally at themselves, we won't see that come to fruition in terms of some of the outcomes. No, exactly. I think that that those examples are fantastic. They really are. And I totally support what you're all saying, and that is that there is a lot of activity going on in the organisation, but the board needs to ask the questions and get that information, and, and it needs to be a really important discussion. And, Fee, we're seeing lots of fantastic changes. I, I, again, I refer to my time in in council. I was on a very gender diverse and young council, which was an absolute anomaly across the country. And several of us had babies while we were on council, which that council had never had to deal with before and had to adjust to doing things a little bit differently. There were babies in chambers. There were dads that brought their babies along to events. There was things that had to change. When I was appointed to my role as a director in community health, I was pregnant at the time. I had another child since then. I was pretty much pregnant the whole time or had a baby with me for the first few years of my appointment and I never ever felt like I wasn't welcome it was always as inclusive as possible and so we're seeing some really great changes there that then allow that diversity that we want to see embedded throughout an organization 
I'm sure there's lots of examples of an opposite experience of that, but from my perspective, I've had a good one. No, I think there are some fabulous examples. And just sneaking back to Julia's point before about recognising in the workplace the different conditions that people come with. Um, I just saw the most extraordinary piece of research that's been delivered this week in Victoria around making workplaces more sensitive to people with, you know, Asperger's, but more importantly, autism, and, and about the noise levels and the way things are set out. And I thought, what a wonderful time we're in when those things are openly discussed. I mean, I can remember when my children were at school and they started coming home and talking about how to recognise other kids who had those different kinds of things that they came with and how to actually support them in the playground and things like that. And I remember thinking, this is fantastic. And actually, I think some of the schools are probably a little bit ahead of us in our workplaces. And I think that's the job of the board, to look around the table and actually dare to talk about those things. It's really interesting, fantastic. So I think let's sum up now. Let's talk to each of you because a real theme that is coming through is that this overall is a cultural piece. So I'd just like to ask each of you to sort of sum up and maybe give us a tip for today in finishing this discussion. And Michaela, I'd love to hear from you. What what is a tip from you, particularly given your focus around this being a, a real cultural piece? I've got a few tips, Fee. Um, Good. I, think, I like that even better. <laughs> I think, you know, making sure that you are engaged in opportunities like this where you can um, look up and to see or have a better understanding of the context that you're working in. It is very easy to be consumed in your individual organisations and um, their individual needs. So to be able to look up and see what the wider sector is and what the wider environment is starts to put things um, in terms of potential risks or potential priorities that you can start to say, well, what's my organisation doing um, or not doing? And starting to ask those questions that as directors we, we need to ask, but then to also reinforced in ways that we can either from a governance perspective or from some of those examples we talked about visually as well. So I think that's a really practical way forward to continue to invest in professional development so that you uh, do keep up to speed with these opportunities, but then how you can practically support your organisations. At the VHA, we have a number of different initiatives that we have been introducing in terms of board essentials for training for our board directors, but also a lunch and learn series, which will start next week where we look at specific areas such as next week will be the induction of board directors. And so it's how can you continue to participate in initiatives like that to keep yourself upskilled. But being a bit of a policy nerd, I'd also strongly encourage you just to keep an eye out um, for what's happening in that governance space because that will often drive, if it's not there already, things that are the have-tos, not just the would-like-tos. So I'd really encourage you to subscribe to a range of different news letters, certainly in the three topics that we've talked about now, but more broadly in terms of governance, that will be something that you can scan and delete or file away later, but will often lead you to more detailed areas you can look into. But also Engage Victoria often are doing a range of different consultations that can give you a little bit of a heads up in terms of some areas that you might need to be across. 
Terrific. Thank you. Julia? Look, I, I probably come with a slightly different lens too in that while I understand that cultural safety is really important, I'm deliberately looking now to surround myself by people who, who will deliberately rock the boat. I want to see all the holes in the system, all the things that they see that I might not, and just and just bring me, um, don't bring me solutions. I want the problems and I want the challenges now. My job in any capacity I'm in, in as, as a senior leader is keeping rocking the boat, but I've got to keep it steady as well. So taking that, what I mean by that is taking all those insights and then how do we build that back into an improved system that's actually going to make it much more um, healthy for everybody. There's a practical example that I'm dealing with at the moment. We've got the cladding safety issues going through the VBA. Most of the most of the board and the executive are women, which is interesting. And first time I've ever worked in a in a situation like that. I'm usually one with all the boys, but it's the the practitioners out there are largely men. Very unusual to get a, a female plumber or a building surveyor, and yet most of the clientele that we're having to deal with are women. It is just such an amusing and sort of like oh, mismatch. And I saw the same thing in family violence when I did a piece through there, reorganising and scaling a service. As we know, in COVID, that was really dire. And some of the peaks were starting to take the um, issue from a different lens and look at removing the perpetrator from the home, not the mum and the kids, so that everybody was stable and you could provide some wraparound services to the perpetrator get them sifted and sorted and then and then deal with the whole situation. That was the first time anything like that had ever been tried and it was really successful. That's really good. Really successful. I, I love, so you're a little bit like what Matt is saying, comfort zone and growth zone are not yeah. the same zones. No. So go, Julia. And no. Joanne, <laughs> Joanne. What about you? Look, I think it's really important for boards to recognise the role they play in leading the organisation. They, they are the apex. They set the tone. We all know that the board sets the culture for the organisation. So particularly with the issues that we've talked about today, social inclusiveness, climate change, gender equality, if it's not important to the board, how can we expect it to be important to the organisation? So the the board has to take a leadership role. They have to set the expectations around what they want to see uh, happen to the, to the organisation, what sort of actions they want to occur, and they have to follow it up with seeing the evidence so that they, there is actual proof that the organisation is living climate change, responsibility, social inclusiveness and gender equality. Otherwise, it won't happen. Fantastic. Thank you. The insights and the discussion today have been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, the three of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And I'm sure everybody has left with an awful lot of tips and information today. And I guess for me, the biggest thing I've got out of today, listening to the three of you, and something that I think is really uplifting, is that each and every one of us can actually do something. Like, this isn't one of those look out and who's going to do something, why aren't the executive bringing me a report, why isn't someone else doing something. This is actually each of us, after this session, be brave, 
go and ask, what are we doing about these three things at our boardroom or on our executive? So thank you. That's the message I've got out of today. So everybody, thank you so much for coming. Look, I just want to put a big vote out for all of you to consider coming to the VHA Lunch and Learn. I think this is a great initiative and I actually think as directors and as executives, it's giving you an opportunity to discuss something and hear from the horse's mouth, so to say, what are some good ways of doing these things? And I think talking about induction is crucial. Right now, it's crucial. So please, you really should all consider going. And again, thank you, Michaela, Julia and Joanne. It's been wonderful. Bye.